Hi, I'm Chris Peterson, and this is KindredCast, a podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree, a global merchant and investment bank. Today, we dive deep into the art market. LionTree CEO Arya Borkov is joined by two guests, Josh Baer, the art advisor whose Bear Facts newsletter and No Reserve YouTube channel are the go-to for everyone wanting to know what's happening in the art world, and Jackie Rhesus, who has served as Square Financial's lead executive for six years. Jackie, an avid art collector, Josh and Arie discuss the state of the art market, the impact that COVID-19 has had on it, and the evolving art scene. To listen to other Kindred Media shows or receive our daily Take a Break newsletter, be sure to head to the link in our show notes or search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this podcast. Now, here's Arie with Josh and Jackie. Hi, everyone. I'm Arie, and I'm back for the latest Kindred cast, this time sitting down virtually with two very interesting leaders in their respective fields, and may I say, two very different worlds but we're going to find out how to connect the dots. You're both linked by one thing, apart from a longstanding friendship, and that is the appreciation of art. I'm joined today by Jackie Rhesus, who until later this month is the head of Square Capital and a longtime friend. Square Capital and Square, as you know, is a global fintech and lending company. And Jackie's also an avid collector. More on that later. I'm also joined by Josh Baer, a new friend and business partner, and also one of the art world's most connected connectors, advisor to many, including Jackie, and the owner of the Bear Facts newsletter and host of the new YouTube show, No Reserve. Thank you both for joining me today and welcome to Kindred Cast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. First of all, congratulations to you both. Jackie, you've had an incredible career at Square and I've I've followed it and been alongside of you the whole way through. Before Square, you were obviously Chief Development Officer at Yahoo. And it was recently announced that you'd be moving on to do something exciting and some other things that I'm sure you'll be sharing publicly at the right time. And so we're looking forward to that and an exciting next chapter. You've always outperformed every time you've been in motion. And Josh, uh, to you, just this week, I'm proud to say that Liontree, alongside uh, our mutual friend, Glenn Furman, with his virtual investment company, invested in your company, The Bear Facts, to work together with Kindred and helping to really uh, develop additional digital expansions and the media opportunity around art. So lots going on for everyone. And I'm really happy that we're all together at this important moment. So thanks for being here. Thanks, boss. <laughs> you can call me Arya. I was talking to Jackie. <laughs> touche, touche. Well, first, let me ask, I know both of you, Jackie for a long time and Josh more recently, but how did you two meet? Because I, I was surprised to know that you guys knew each other. Why don't I start? I have always liked collecting art. But what I found is that I was collecting pieces with no particular purpose in mind, and I had no appreciation for the depth of quality. And so I went on a search for an art advisor who would be amazingly insightful, smart, and very honest and open with me about what I was building and what I wanted to build. And that led me to Josh very easily. We met through a mutual friend. And met actually repeatedly before we ended up working together. We've now known each other for a few years, and it's been a very fruitful relationship. I have a friend who says that 90% of business is just showing up. So I went to San Francisco for an art fair, a small one that's excellent, called the Fog Art Fair. 
And I was walking with a client of mine from New York and Silicon Valley, and we bump into Jackie there, and he introduces us. And Jackie does her thing, and she emails me a week later. She's interested in my newsletter. Maybe we could talk. And all that seems sort of normal. And then I, to show the small world thing, I said, do you happen to know this other woman that I know in finance who happened to be at Evercore at the time where I was doing a big project, a woman named Jane Gladstone? And Jackie goes, oh, my God, she's one of my best friends. So that took the conversation, I think, to another level of access through people that you know is really how the art world moves rather than going online and trying to find a banker, an art advisor, something like that. And that really gave you the, I think, the confidence to have a deeper conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to get into the art advisory relationship that you guys have. But Josh, first, tell us about how you came into art, because you were born in New York, and I grew up really around art, but it's a really nice New York City kind of story. How did you come into being and come into this world? Well, my mom and my stepfather moved to New York when I was about four or five years old to really be artists. So that was 1960. And the art world was really kind of small then. There was like, I can remember Andy Warhol at my house for all those years, famous critics and dealers and artists. Just, I was taken everywhere because there were no nannies, no babysitters. And so I really got to meet all the great artists because New York was a small art world. At that point, I thought, I don't want anything to do with art. I'm going to go get a degree in math. I got a master's in computer science in the 70s. It's like, and I said, I hate this, this stuff. Wait a second. I want to move back to New York to be in the art business or the art world. And I think in the same way, if your dad's a plumber, you know the plumbing business. If your dad's in hedge fund world or your mom, that's where you have a sort of an inside view. So I always had it in my blood without realizing that it was interesting. My dad's a physicist, so I'm not sure if I may be the exception to the rules. <laughs> yeah, and Andy Warhol was definitely not hanging out at my house when I was a kid in Atlantic City. And so that is a very unique background. And Josh's mom is a world-famous artist and has multiple paintings in MoMA. And so I kind of appreciated that he understood art from the ground up and almost had his fingernails dirty with it in his blood and in his heart throughout his entire livelihood. In fact, it gave me the ability to see it from the artist's perspective. And then when I became a dealer and had a gallery, it gave me the other side too. So I was always sort of able to see both sides of how things function. So there's a uh, Nobel laureate named Professor Donnie Kahneman who wrote Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And I asked him once in a podcast like this, what makes a great advisor? He said, a great advisor is someone that has your best interest in mind, but doesn't care about your feelings. Ideally, you do both. So Josh, what does an art advisor do? And Jackie, since you've had firsthand experience like many others that benefit from Josh's expertise, how do you receive that advice? But Josh, like, what does an art advisor really do? Well, one of the key terms for an art advisor is that you're really a fiduciary, which is generally the worst seat in the house because you have to take care of your client's interests first ahead of your own. So that's an important distinction between an advisor rather than a dealer who is representing their own book, buying and selling on their own. 
I'm not buying and selling generally things that I own or inventory, or if I did, I disclose it. So it's looking out for the best interest of the client first. So I start there. And then what I say is I'm selling access and knowledge in a world that's counterintuitive. So let me add to that. I think your comment about access and knowledge is spot on. That has been absolutely critical for me because I came in with very limited context. I studied art history and then ended up at Wharton, but I did study art history and came to appreciate the aesthetic context of art. What I didn't have an appreciation for in depth is the cultural and historical context and also the context of the span of an artist's work. What I wanted Josh's advice for is to understand those elements of a piece of art. Because I could take a point of view on whether I like something. And I was only going to buy things that I appreciated and that my husband and I wanted in our home. But to know which Basquiat to buy amongst a breadth of work was absolutely critical. And also appreciating why one held more value than the other I had absolutely no understanding of. And so it was great to be able to walk into a gallery or an auction house or even an artist's home and studio and be able to take a point of view on why something was better than another. And that was so critical to me in addition to exploring access, which is obviously pretty critical in a market that I find to be a little less than transparent. Well, I want, let me ask both of you, like, how do you really go about building a collection of art? Because typically the reputation of the art world is somewhat aloof or secretive, or some people think the prices are unusually high and the barriers to entry are very high to break in to be a new collector. But Jackie, you experienced this successfully with Josh's help. So how do you really go about building a collection? And Josh, how would you advise someone to start doing that? So... I'll tell you what I did, and then Josh could tell you whether I did it wrong or right, or I'm somewhere in the middle. As I said, I first started by collecting artists that I liked. I didn't have any appreciation for where the piece was in the breadth of the work that they created. And so I got lucky on some. I bought a Kehinde Wiley that I loved in 2017, and I feel like I bought the right piece that I really wanted. But then I was buying across a breadth of artists. And what we ended up doing was taking a moment of pause and trying to look at one, themes, what mattered in our life, and two, artists. And we came at it from both dimensions. So on themes, Josh, very quickly, that I appreciate artists that are underrepresented voices. You know, I'm a woman who worked in the finance industry. And so what resonated with me and my husband was super supportive were artists like Barbara Kruger or Kehinde Wiley and artists who were basically putting a voice front and center to show representation and kind of who you are. I'm here. That mattered. And so we have a lot of artists that we've collected that are women and underrepresented minorities. And I wasn't trying to come at it thinking about their moment in history, which feels like it's being represented now. I was really trying to come at it from a personal point of view. And then the second way was to come at it from the artist perspective. When we wanted to go collect Basquiat, 
Josh basically stopped us from buying anything and said, let's go on an exploration. Let's see what there is to see. We went gallery by gallery and met with those that he felt were appropriate to have the type of art that I wanted to go look at. And we did a deep dive in a particular artist. And so we were able to triangulate purchasing from that perspective so that when my husband and I were buying a piece, we felt good that we'd seen everything we wanted to see and we could make a decision about finding the right one for what we wanted to build. I like to say there's some ground rules that are useful that good is the enemy of great. And we can move quickly if we've done all our homework. And my take is to look at art, certainly we're talking about valuable, expensive art through a lens of history. How does it fit in history? But ultimately, it's my client's taste. It's their art. It's their money. They have to love it. I can guide them about a more academic view of better and best, but still they have to have a chemical response to it. Obviously, I have to work on the value of it within the market because art has gotten one or two more zeros on it than when I started. So there, there are a lot of elements that come there. But I think that Jack and Yori are used to like how you process information. And people who are collecting in your world are used to going deep in a specific company, stock, way of looking. And that's valuable in buying a work of art. Now, the problem is you're not broad in art. That's my job to be broad. But when we narrow down is to dive deep in all the ways, the emotional way, the historical way, the financial way, and the access way. So it's a collaborative effort. By the way, both those answers are very helpful, and I'll try to apply them in my own endeavors. But how do you differentiate between building a collection and just buying things? Like Jackie said, I found things I like, I bought it. Makes sense. A lot of people say that you have to follow what you like first and you'll never go wrong. But then what differentiates that, which is, there's nothing wrong with it, to actually moving into a collection? And how do you think about how you go about building a collection with a certain thematic and a certain kind of passion? There's a difference between an accumulation of great objects, and many people have that in their house, on their walls, and a collection. Collection tends to tell a story and have a narrative. We're developing one as we go, and realizing Jackie and I and Matt what that is. I mean, you happen to also love color, and that's like something that you didn't realize, and certain issues that go through. I have my own kind of things that I'm personally interested in, but we're not a museum, so we're telling a story, except when we're not. And sometimes it's, you just love it, and sometimes it fits the theme, and things tend to develop. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you're building a collection, similar to running a portfolio, Jackie, and in your experience, it sounds like you also have a higher likelihood or a greater degree of confidence in building value because art is not only about something that's personal and something that is passionate, but also about driving value. And hopefully the more of a collection and a narrative and a thematic that you have, the more opportunities you have to really kind of build something sustainable over a long period of time. Is that the right way of looking at yeah. it, Jackie? Well, I also think collection should not imply unaffordable pricing. Because I do think at different levels, you can build a collection. I think it implies purpose and intent. 
I found the biggest mistake I made was that about being lackadaisical and almost purposeless before I really thought about how much money over time I was investing and how important that was to me and how I wanted to drive a more purposeful focus on what I was doing. And that, I think, made me be smarter about it and it made me do more homework. And I think if people are going to spend whatever amount of money makes sense to them, and art is usually not a, a low income type of price, but you know, you clearly want to be thinking about things with a level of sophistication and homework that makes what you're doing smart. And that's why I think the idea around a collection becomes more important and more purposeful. Just to add to that, though, I think there's excellent and great works that one could buy that aren't six and seven figures. And I think the second work I got you to buy, one of my favorite that you have in your collection, I think was 20 bucks, which was a film by the yep. Swiss artist named Fishley and Weiss. They'd shown it to Guggenheim. It's their greatest work. And we've been talking about video. Said, you guys, Matt makes films. You know, look at this thing. It's a great work of art. It's $20. What's and it worth now? 20 I think it's probably 19 with the postage. We looked at different ways to put video art in our house. And we wanted to be able to run loops of interesting films and themes in the house, in the room where we will entertain and throw parties to give it levity, to make it fun. We don't want any party in our house to ever be boring. And so we put a television above the bar so that we could run this video loop and have it be entertaining to anyone who comes in and watches it. You know, it was a $20 download from the web, but you can't stop watching it once it plays. And yes. it's super fun. The placement also seems great because it probably gets progressively more fun if it's over the bar as the night goes on. <laughs> yeah, but it's a perfect example where it fit the purpose of what we were trying to do. We wanted the house to be fun and interesting, and we wanted people to have a good time while they were in there. And so we have two video pieces in the house. One is this $20 install that we took from the web, which Josh found for us and recommended. And the other is a Brian Brass video, which is so nutty and kooky that you can't stop sitting in front of it and watching it. And he's a less known artist, but I thought he just made you smile. Anytime you looked at this thing, it was highly entertaining and fun. You know, we found these things that created, they evoke emotion and made being in the home fun. I love it. Josh, when you look back in time and in your experience or... Obviously, you're somewhat of a historian about the market. Who are the best collectors? And what can we learn from them? Not only Jackie, but other people uh, watching or listening to the podcast. Hmm. Great collectors. I would say uh, Mitch and Emily Rails in, outside of Washington, they have uh, tried to mention people that you can actually go see their collections. So the Glenstone Collection in Potomac is my favorite museum. They just have the perfect work of every artist through the century, and they tell a story about the history of art. So that's somebody I admire. They're not afraid to pay the price it takes. The general truth is, if you have two pieces and one is a little bit less and not as good, you're making a mistake if you're saving money. You know, the $100,000 thing versus the $80,000 thing, 
buy the best work you can afford. Even the best deals that people have made have been paying record prices at a certain point. I think Eli Broad should be commended for like giving his whole collection and building a museum in Los Angeles. But there's other collectors that are famous. I remember as a kid, there was a couple named the Vogels. And there's a film about them. He was a mailman and she was a librarian, each about four feet, 11 inches tall. They lived on one salary and collected art on the other salary. And now, 60 years later, big part of it's at the National Gallery in Washington, and they gave works to museums in all 50 states. The trouble is that can't be done again. You can't be spending a hundred bucks a month and buying work. That kind of grassroots collecting cannot be done. One year out of Yale, a show, it's $50,000. I mean, we've really priced emerging art out of the realm of the non-one percenters. So it's a different moment. I've heard also Ronald Lauder has a great collection, an exquisite eye. Do you agree? It's fantastic. He picked, I read someplace, I don't know if you said this, or pick a lane and stick to it. I mean, he picked a few lanes and really went all in. And some, I'm sure his family told him he was crazy not to do what he did. And some of those people made the best investments ever in their family on buying art, but they did it out of passion. And if there's no passion, it just, it's like an accumulation of objects. And you can tell a passionate collector from a dispassionate collector. Yeah. And Jackie, I want to draw the bridge between your day job and your core business and the art world, because you have not only grown up in the financial world, but also in the digital payments world of finance and really the innovative parts of finance all the way through. And when you look at art, there's a lot of finance around it, right? Because there's, how do you finance a purchase? Because if it's $20, fine. But if you really want to go and stretch for things that you really love, there's a financing element to it. There's also a crypto element now, apparently, to art. And you could have even partial share ownership in art, et cetera. So companies like Sotheby's have financing arms. Christie's does not. But obviously, it's a fully accessible market to get capital these days. But how do you think about finance and art and digital payments and art? And how does it all intersect? Because you could teach Josh and myself a lot about that, I think. First and full stop, I consider art an asset class that is a great store of value. It generates a pretty healthy, positive return for investors. And interestingly, it's not correlated to stocks and bonds. And so I like it from a diversification point of view. And I think about it from an asset class perspective. In the same way that I think about a venture portfolio of venture investments that I love, I consider art the same way. Do you love the venture portfolio and the stocks the same way you really love art? Because asset classes are one thing, but there's a passion behind art as well, right? Well, so venture investing, I have a passion behind the entrepreneurs and the businesses that they're building. That is different from a, an equities portfolio where I have zero passion for like investing in FANGs or an ETF or the S&P. But when you're investing in venture, I think it's the same storytelling and narrative around backing an entrepreneur to help them build a business. And I love that. And I love helping to build businesses. And I think with something like art, I appreciate that it is a very strong store of value. So I do think of it as building a diversified asset class in my personal portfolio. 
I think the only issue that I see on art financing and on art today is that around transparency. And so I do think some of the things that Josh is doing around the bare facts are helpful because that feels like the most limiting factor to building out the breadth of a scaled market in art because it's still fairly opaque to get data on art transactions. But, you know, I think Artnet has an index, a, a market performance index, and I believe art, top 100 artists outperform the S&P. I look at it from that perspective, albeit with an appreciation that I get to have it in my home as well. Great. Josh, I'm going to ask this question, but as I ask the question, I realize part of the answer. So the bare facts, it's been around for 25 years. And I was going to ask you what's changed in that time frame about the art world and what you think is the future of the art world. But start with saying what bare facts is. And I laugh because obviously the name bare facts indicates a massive change in the last 25 years of how you started given the technology that's innovated since the facts. Well, it relates to what Jackie was talking about, which is access to knowledge and information. So back 25 years ago, when the fax machine was a, a new product, it was a way of delivering information about the art world and the art market more quickly than the art magazines. And that's still an issue today with that. The art world doesn't want transparency. That's how things stay expensive. They want it to be insider. They're not protecting some shareholder in debut. So it's sort of counterintuitive to what we really want, which is private knowledge. So I'm selling that to individuals, to a larger pool of people, of here's what we know today. Obviously, the biggest change is the role of the internet. So, so much information is out there. And I like to think that we become over-informed, but under-educated. So all that information makes us think we know what's going on, which say the value of a painting. I'll use that as an example. But if you don't know that that painting's got a rip in it, you can look at all the financial data you want. I was going to say, I can't interpret the database of art sale prices without help as someone who sits on the other side of buying art. To Josh's point, I find it practically impossible to appreciate the provenance of a particular painting and how it fits in context with other sale prices. It makes no sense to me without professional expertise. Interesting. Well, you know, that's helpful also. I think that's probably what the bare facts is all about, right? Which is giving people that knowledge and that transparency and that framework. And then obviously Josh's personal contact can add a lot of depth behind that. But what do you think about the COVID cycle? Because that is a mechanism for a real evolution of our world in a lot of ways. And people talk about COVID as an accelerant to a lot of trends. But in the art world, COVID has really been an impediment to buying art in traditional auction houses because you're really not gathering right now. But at the same time, there seems to be a lot of activity in the private negotiations for art. In some cases, people are buying art, even pricey art, without even seeing the art in person first. Did you ever expect that? Or like, do you think that's a sign of things to come? I think it's temporary. And we're going to go back to in real life viewing as being important. And I can tell you there was a lot of action at Teterboro with people flying in to see works of art in a hangar and flying back out at the high end. So eyeballs on at the high end of the market have been important. 
I think the social aspect of the art world is essential that going to Venice and seeing an artist in a show, that's fun. And whether you go by Air Italia or on your yacht, it's fun. And I think we're getting tired of online viewing rooms. I was watching Sotheby's live streaming auction, which was still going on when we were talking. I think we're going to get a little bit weary of that. And God knows in six months, we'll be ready to get back to the old ways a bit. I think the positive thing is it's forced people to do a different type of sales technique where it needs to be really delivered and thought out and piece by piece. Now, the art world was too cushy. It was too easy. People thought they were geniuses. Now they've discovered, wait a second, maybe I wasn't quite as smart as I thought. Those are just sort of some random thoughts there. I really enjoy going to art fairs and art events as well to see works. I find it very hard to learn about new artists without seeing them in person. And so as a collector, it's been challenging, except for artists that I'm familiar with. And so some of the ways that I've tried to overcome that are by having things shipped to my house, going somewhere in order to go see them in a more private context. But I've certainly been far more reluctant to do that. It didn't feel essential to me in the context of the early stages of COVID. And then in the later stages of COVID, I was more willing to explore. There are three areas that I think need improvement or places that I've enjoyed the quick evolution in the art world. The first is related to online video. I've really enjoyed being brought into the online video world of experts in their field and having a more personal view at who they are and watching them be more open from their living rooms with presenting art or showing things in a very contextual way. I've really, really enjoyed that. I've enjoyed museum tours. That's been super fun in a way where I didn't feel like people felt comfortable with the quality of content they were producing and people just kind of went with it. And so I loved it. And then I've enjoyed more of the narrative that as a result of that, they've shared in video. The place where I feel like still needs more work is that around websites and apps. And I feel like the art world shows two-dimensional pictures and they show like three of them. You get a scale and you get a front view and you get a back view. And that feels so limited with regard to options that could be pursued on art apps and art sites. And the depth of that, I'm hoping, will evolve as a result of COVID because there really are more opportunities to showcase different elements of a piece of work that go beyond what's been done thus far. And so COVID was a good accelerant to that, but I think everyone's now examining what they do on an ongoing basis. Just from that point, there's a lot of work on augmented virtual reality for galleries. So I think they were slow to get to it. And I think there's a rush to that for the galleries themselves more than the auction houses or the magazine. But it is the catalyst for change, even museums, where obviously we prefer to gather for a lot of reasons, even to support the museums. Now, given the COVID pandemic and the lack of kind of activity within those museums, hard for those museums like the Baldwin Museum or the Brooklyn Museum to cover their operating costs. So now they're resorting to even being allowed to sell part of their collection. That's stimulating a bit of a capital raise, which is normally taboo, I think, 
but you're seeing some of that activity coming out of this uh, period. Is that healthy? No, but necessary, maybe. It depends. If they're selling their great things like Baltimore selling their only great Price Martin painting, a very rare Warhol painting, and I, the only Clifford Still in the museum in Maryland where Clifford Still's from, I don't think that's healthy. If you're saying they're cleaning out their basement of thousands of objects they'll never sell and get them in homes that people would enjoy it, I think they're maintaining their mission in a better way. Interesting. Well, I think it's also a moment where the tightening of the art market will loosen up. So, for example, collectors that have been holding their collections forever, potentially needing some liquidity or just being prudent because of portfolio alignment or reconstruction may end up putting more supply into the market. I'm just prognosticating. I'm not the expert. And that will allow new collectors to come in and new entrances to the art world, which is, I think, part of the energy of what's happening, connecting the dots going forward. Hopefully that's the case. If I could just make a financial point, the art world is counterintuitive. When supply goes up, demand goes up and price goes up. If suddenly 50 more Warhols enter the market, you might think that's going to kill the market. It has a better chance of helping the market. And certainly, again, when the price of things go up, more people want it. It's not like cereal or something like that, where if I, my Wheaties are less than my cornflakes, I'll buy my Wheaties. Well, that's interesting because when you and I toured some galleries this summer, uh, Josh, one of the things I took away from it was if something, it's like the, the efficient market theory in on Wall Street, that uh, two people are walking down Wall Street and one sees a $20 bill on the floor and says, look, there's a $20 bill. And the other person said, no, 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 if it's a real $20 bill, it would already been picked up by now. So when you go to a gallery and you see a nice piece of work, if it was really worth it or valuable, it wouldn't have already been picked up or bought by then. So how do you reconcile those things that are actually staying around the galleries for a while and not being acquired for a knowledgeable buyer base? You have to have guts to buy art. You have to be willing to be against the curve. Remember the, the work of art we saw that day that I loved the most? I just closed on selling that piece today. That was wow. after months of discussion. So things take their time to have happen. Can you at least say the artist or, or do you want to disclose it? Francis Picabia. So it was a painting from the 40s. But you right. liked it. I loved it. Was My mistake. See, you should have bought it. You thought, why is it available? You didn't buy it. Now you want it. Now that you exactly. can't have it. Yeah, exactly. I was saving the money for the newsletter. Good choice. I could have bought it myself yesterday, but I didn't. <laughs> Good. Tell us about the No Reserve YouTube channel you have now, because it reminds me when you're watching it of like a pre and post NFL game, because what you do, it, I, I love watching the quality is, is incredible. You're talking about like an auction beforehand and afterwards and a recap. Tell us about it for a little bit. I'm, I'm sure, Jackie, you're already watching it. I think in the lockdown, we were seeing the NFL draft was one of the few things that was kind of fun to do. And for the bare facts, one of our most important products is listing who's buying and underbidding all the auctions. I realized, shit, I couldn't do that. It's my number one most desired part of, of this newsletter. So, and I was talking to a client of mine who was saying that he'd be curious to see what Larry Gugosian was doing during the sale. And so we sort of had this live streaming idea of doing it. And again, giving real content, access to people in a way like we're doing this show. Hopefully people will be interested in all this in a visual format so we could see the art. 
Now, I've seen that Sotheby's today did their pregame show from London and they had a real journalist, but how did they separate it out from being just showing what they're putting on? It was like high production value. The hostess was way more attractive and better spoken than I am, but I'm not sure she could delve as deeply as we're trying to do. We're trying to go into people's homes and people's studios and get people to really, because they're comfortable with me, tell what's going now. Can we get this to a broader audience? I hope so. To really make things that the two of you would find interesting is really the people who go to Art Basel, Miami Beach. What would they like to know about the art world? It's not for 50 million people, but maybe 50,000 people can really understand what's going on better. Jackie, did you like the show? I find it to be a living version of an art history book where you get really interesting insights and an insider's view into someone's collection. So I've loved watching it. I don't consider myself someone who knows that much about art. I feel like I'm learning. And as I'm on this journey to learn, it's one of the better sources to learn about collecting because it's genuine. It has access to amazing people. You often see really interesting ideas. And so I've loved watching it. Super fun. Good idea. All right, good. Jackie, I love the way you talked about your interest in finding women artists that maybe were underappreciated and drawing the analogy to a woman in finance. And obviously, hopefully all these things are corrected these days. But are you seeing trends in art kind of mirror societal progressive changes? Like, are there more artists that are women or minorities that are coming to the forefront or kind of really trending now? I'll give you a consumer's point of view and Josh should give you the market point of view. From a consumer's point of view, I've always found art to amplify what's going on in society. And that's why I like to study art history when I was in college, because I felt like it was a more visual way to explain history. And you could see it through representations of what's happening in the world. I think the interesting idea of the last decade is that around collecting women and underrepresented people's art and realizing how few artists are represented by galleries and in museums and asking really tough questions about why that is the case and whether that feels right and whether some of those folks should be found who were historically important but never got their due. And so as someone who's been able to consume, I've been amazed at the availability of female and underrepresented minority art. It feels like it's finally come to fruition, that it's become important for galleries. I do think over time, it will evolve creatively and evolve from a market point of view. I don't think it's a flash in the pan moment for either population. I think The idea of representation has become so important in America that I think art is just one manifestation of it, that it is looking at these critical issues in its own population. So it's been fun to be offered so many artists. I've loved it. I found a lot of art by Black artists that I've wanted to buy. And so it's been fun to have that opportunity. I'd like to say that for 30 years, I've been very involved in showing and buying and selling work by women artists, probably because my mom gave me that vantage point. And Black artists, certainly the market has woken up to it. 
What's more interesting to me is that people like LeBron James and P. Diddy are collecting art. A lot of NBA players, they're collecting art because they're finding art that they can relate to. And that's been important. One of the things that's interesting about working with Jackie, the women that you grew up with around in the trading desk, at the same time starting, there's a group of you who've been 20, 30 years at it, suddenly woke up at the top of the heap. And it's like, well, it's my money. I made a lot of it. I'm not the Twinkie walking around trophy wife thing of agreeing with my husband of what to get. I'm in control of this. And I'm relating to things that work to me. And that's a between collectors of color and women having a voice in the marketplace has been great. And it reflects on the artists in the marketplace. Where it's missing is the infrastructure of the art world. It's still 99% white. So if you go into any gallery, they might have one black person or auction house. So that's going to take time for that to bubble up in a meaningful way. It's certainly a problem that's now forefront. The financial part moves much faster than the educational part of being 18 and thinking, well, gee, I'd like to be an art advisor. You know, I love art. I grew up in Brooklyn that I could make that. You need to see people like you in those roles. I think Wall Street has the same issue of how to get more people that look different in their companies. I would like to say that I've probably known Jackie for 20 years and I've only thought of her as the dominant personality in every step of the way, regardless of the stage of development of her wealth creation. Her personality demanded that respect. Yeah, I'm not a Twinkie. No, no. <laughs> so we like to always close with some quick hits. I have some just quick questions if uh, we can get a few uh, pieces of free advice out there. So Josh, I'll start with you. What is the piece of art behind you? It's a photograph by an artist named Charles Ray. And... It's of a cheeseburger. I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm in my kitchen. It's a cheeseburger without color. He built this massive sculpture that's like six feet tall just to photograph it. It makes no rational sense whatsoever. He's one of my 10 favorite artists. I don't even collect art. And early in the COVID lockdown, it was suddenly available. And I said to my wife who loves it, we have to have this. And it's like, all of a sudden, I have this collecting urge that fortunately got satiated with buying that. But I adore it. Look, look him up online, Charles Ray from California, one of my top 10 artists in the world. All right. Uh, Jackie, if you had to choose one or the other, what would you prefer to collect living artists or dead artists? Living artists. I would like to understand their story and be part of their evolution. And yeah. I really enjoy that. Josh, a common friend of ours is now also an investor, has the same answer that could really not only understand the story, but also meet them and interact with them and really enrich your life by knowing them. Okay, free advice, Josh, who's your favorite up and coming artist? People pay me for that. Here's the thing when everybody gives you their opinion really quickly, it's not that meaningful. I'll answer a different way. About a year ago, I started to help an African artist named Amwako Balafo. They're just starting to hear of him. He's become the most in-demand artist in the world. All the galleries want him. In 25 years since I closed my gallery, that's the first young artist I tried to help because I believe in him. I don't think we're in a golden age for young artists. I hope I want that to happen. So 
I'm a tough nut to get for that. That's the number one question people want everybody to answer. It's like, what should I go buy for a thousand dollars that's going to be worth 10 million bucks? You have to subscribe to get the answer. I knew he was going to say that, by the way. I could predict that. I want to add, I like an artist named Katie Stout, who's a sculptor, who makes livable pieces that are quirky and hilarious and funny. I met her at Art Basel in Miami, and she was displaying light fixtures of nude women, and part of their body parts were made out of gold. And that's how you turn the light switch on and off. And I thought it was so funny. I thought she had a whimsical sense about her art. I like her as an unknown sculptor. I don't know that Josh would agree with me. What about you? He's not only an up-and-comer, but I like Mark Bradford a lot. I have a few other ones that are coming that I'm uh, exploring right now. He's a great artist. He's a great artist. Favorite museum in the world, each of you? I already said Glenstone. I love Glenstone in california i like the broad museum i think it's pretty special it's a nugget size it's just the right size to walk around and then my favorite gallery would be in paris where the water lilies are i think it's the tuileries and you walk around the monet water lilies and i remember bringing my kids there and bringing them with magic markers and a piece of paper and letting them sit on the floor and try to recreate it in their own eyes. I just thought it was the most special place. Last question I have is not to lose sight of the moment we're in. And obviously it's in flux with a lot of tension and stress and difficulty for a lot of people. Thankfully, uh, everyone seems here to be healthy and we are hopefully going to come out of it as we enter 2021 and a new chapter. When you look forward five, 10 years, What's the number one thing you think you're going to take from this period that you want to take forward with you? I'm going to hope that America showed all of our nation that we'll have gotten through this period. And America that I believe in, that my daughter doesn't believe in so much, actually exists. That's where I hope five years or actually 15 days from now that we'll be. I totally agree with Josh. That would be my first sentiment. And then I would add that I've been completely energized by the ingenuity of small businesses. And I think small businesses across the United States were dealt a absolutely brutal hand in COVID in trying to figure out how to survive, manage, and pivot their businesses in order to survive. And I'm amazed by the entrepreneurs and their stories that are really the underpinning of America and kind of the main street of our communities and how they figured out how to evolve and grow, whether it's a restaurant that's doing takeout or chefs that are doing online video and then sending you food at home. We're now in a moment where there are more businesses being started than ever. In addition to Josh's comments, I love how entrepreneurial this country is and how small businesses really do create the economic engine for America. And to give Jackie and Square a shot, I mean, a billion dollars of PP money went through Square to those companies averaging maybe $15,000 alone. And for all the stories I hear about you know, big banks not helping people, that that didn't happen by accident at Square without that way of thinking, Jackie. And personally, I'd like to thank you on behalf of thousands of businesses and lives you've saved for doing that. Something to be proud of. 
It's very square. And I have to say PPP was one of the most trying experiences of my life and kind of living through the emotion of those challenges with small businesses. We were able to help a lot of artists and galleries who did business through Square. That was incredibly wonderful to see because in some cases they needed help on the financial side and we were able to help them with financial literacy and explaining the complexity of that situation. And so it was fun to be a part of. And even with the art community, it felt great to be able to help people where they really needed it. Well said, Josh, and uh, well done, Jackie. And for those of you that were wondering why Lion Tree was backing uh, Josh and Bearfax now, I think you have your answer. It's not just a personal interest, but also one that I think has a lot of financial interest as well and some upside in terms of how the art world gets reoriented in the new uh, digital economy with interesting financial sets. And uh, I'm so happy that I've also, through uh, this podcast, got to reorient with Jackie after all this time. I know that you guys are great friends. It makes everything a little bit better. So thank you so much for your time today, both of you, and look forward to catching up on more. I'm looking forward to seeing what's to come, Jackie. Yep, absolutely. Good to see you all. Thanks for listening today. We hope you learned something new. You should also check out our podcasts, Kinsider and The Vazy View, both part of the Kindred Media Network. You can find them wherever you're listening to podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, feel free to share the show with a friend or even leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Thanks. We'll see you soon.